Andy Griffin Show, the number one talk show in St. George, starring Andy Griffin. Hi, everybody. Great to be here. Uh, worth mentioning real quick, a new sponsor of this show is the Barbecue Pit Stop of St. George. That's St. George's premier barbecue store with the uh, Utah's largest selection of smokers, grills, outdoor kitchens, barbecue sauces, rubs, and other accessories. It's the Barbecue Pit Stop right behind Napa Auto Parts, just off the boulevard, at about 300 east. And uh, great to be here today. I have... Well, it's become a good friend of mine now, Dr. David Blodgett, uh, in studio. Sort of, he's in the other studio, but we're close together here at Cherry Creek Radio. Dr. Blodgett, how are you today? Hey, it's uh, good <clears throat> Good to be here, Andy. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you coming in. Uh, I, I told Dr. Blodgett, now, and I've told the listeners this before too, Doc, but uh, I get pretty nervous uh, about shows. You know, I want them to be to go well. I want to be well prepared. I want you know, if I have a guest, I want to I want to you know have a lot of great questions for them. And uh, hopefully they you know I, I've had a, a dud guest or two where they didn't want to talk, and I you know so hopefully they're so there's a lot of things to be nervous about. But uh, there's a couple of shows I don't really get nervous about anymore. One of them is when when you come on the show. Oh, that's and, that's high praise. Thank you. I hope hope that's true. <laughs> I, no, it, it always is. Uh, you are. Uh, I I think in a lot of ways you're uh, kind of a, the voice of reason here in Southern Utah, which I think maybe that's in your job description. But you you do it well. <laughs> well, well, thank you. I I certainly. You know, with all the information out there, the internet, and every, you, somebody has to be able to kind of sort through that and, mm-hmm. and give a a more reasoned approach than what uh, is out there. So, well, and, and speaking of uh, things out there, uh, it was the uh, day before yesterday, I think it was, maybe, maybe three days ago. Anyway, uh, the CDC said... Oh, by the way, ninety-four percent of the uh, of the deaths uh, reported in the United States had other other comorbidities, I guess we're going to call it, and uh, and they said, and actually, most of the average, and most of those had two point six other comorbidities. Yeah. T- tell me what you know about that study and how valid it is. What I mean, I mean, if it comes from the CDC, right, it must be pretty accurate. Yeah, well, so that's what we've been saying from the very beginning, right? We've yeah. always said. We need to focus on those that are most vulnerable here, and that's uh, those that are elderly and those that have underlying medical conditions. And if you have both underlying medical conditions and you're elderly, then then you're that much more likely to do it. So that's – it's actually been posted on the state's website from the very beginning, and uh, that number has always been – that's pretty consistent with what the CDC said, about 6 or 7 percent that are – that really they don't they haven't identified an underlying um, medical condition that might have contributed to whether or not COVID was more severe in them. But uh, uh, I, I would argue even in those six or seven percent, though, that there's things there. One hmm. one thing we don't track, uh, but we should because it seems to be a really important contributor to what happens here is uh, obesity. So those that are that really quite morbidly obese, you know, above 40, do really poorly with this disease. And so that's something really that we need to figure out how to focus on better uh, than we have. So, and, and that would not be a quote-unquote comorbidity necessarily on a death certificate. Yeah, that's not something that would hmm. show up as a uh, – it's not being tracked by the state's website. So, so when you look at those numbers, diabetes is really high up there uh, as a risk factor. We're, we're noticing – 
there just aren't as many people with uh, chronic kidney failure. But if you have chronic failure, kidney failure and you get this disease, it's really hard on you. So, those, those, I mean, it's helpful for us to know who really struggles with this disease right. to, so right. we can focus on them, right? And so, so um, the, the shifting the attention from, wow, this is something nobody should get to, we know really who struggles from this, I think, is an important part of the message. So it's interesting. People act like somehow that's a big lightning bolt revelation, but that's what we've been saying from the beginning. So. Well, it gives, I think, a little validity to what we've been saying. And I, I mean, I, I'm kind of I've been with you. I've been saying, well, no, it's really not something that's going to kill you unless you have, you know, unless there's something already going on with you. And, you know, people are like, yeah, yeah, whatever, Andy, you know, but, but, but that's the truth. And the, the thing you, you talked about obesity, let's throw in uh, smokers, even if you're a light smoker, yeah. you know, that's not going to show up on your death certificate as a reason for you dying. It's going to say COVID-19, but let's be honest, that yeah, that's absolutely. a Va- huge contributing Vaping, factor. illegal drug use, uh, right. you know, that, so you've piled all those things on top of each other and it just... So anything that contributes to the inflammatory status of the body is what – so so the people that die from this don't die from the virus itself. They die from the body's over-response, the inflammatory right. response. So if you have a, an elevated inflammatory condition or in your <clears> – <throat> where your body has a higher inflammatory state and then you kick that up with this disease – the body's ability to deal with that is just compromised, and that's you see this really overdramatic response, uh, immune response, and that's that's where people run into trouble. So the first week they feel bad; it's you know it's a virus, it looks like flu or you know a lot of other things, but it's that second week where you know as the medical community watches out and says, ah, you know this is this is going to be a problem, and then. In the third week, there's an, a further manifestation of some of that immune compromise or immune system problem when people start to have uh, hyper, hypercoagulable states. You know, you can get strokes and things like that. And so we're, we're learning all of that. It's contributing to better therapeutics. People are doing much better in the hospital. We're not killing people with what we're doing. <laughs> we're actually helping people. I mean, the, we've come a long way in just the you know, six, seven, eight months we've been dealing with this. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and you talk about contributing factors we would you rather you know if someone were going to get the disease my wife's 50 years old she is in very good physical condition she's an asthmatic so she definitely you know there's a little bit higher risk for her uh you know for this to bother her but would you rather have someone like that get sick or someone who maybe is 25 years old obese and and vapes on a regular basis yeah yeah well (laughs) so so those are all questions i think we ask ourselves right as we look at our risk factors here and so often i see the people that i would consider the highest risk being the least likely to be kind of being careful right yeah (laughs) that that always confuses me because (laughs) i think the data is out there and 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 so uh i i think your wife would do just fine probably i think Um, so too and probably the 25 year old would be just fine just by reason of age but um but there is, you know, there is always that risk, and if you know you have that risk, then then extra diligence, I think, is really incumbent upon you. Um, it, somehow we've decided in our society we can't not have some people be in different categories than others, but in this case, it really is helpful to understand who it is that we uh, we should be doing things to help. So those of us that maybe are in a lower-risk category, we can do things to help those in a higher-risk category and... and 
make this more about uh, working together as a community as opposed to isolating and locking everybody down. When when you got here this morning, Dr. Blodgett, you said a couple of words together that I hadn't really thought about. I I mean, I thought about the concept, but I did not put those words together. Uh, It was exit strategy. Strategy. I can't even say it. (laughs) Exit strategy uh, for COVID-19. And and, I mean, we're, we're not saying it's over or anything like that, but what we're saying is we need to start getting the world back to somewhat normalcy. And it really hasn't, we haven't really found a way to enact that plan. Yeah. How do you, how do you define Mm -hmm. what, what, uh, what the next phase looks like? Right. So we never really got close to overwhelming medical resources. We've had remarkably few deaths as a state, you know, Mm -hmm. here in Utah and here in our area, we've, uh, we've weathered the storm. We've, uh, We've done better economically, perhaps, than almost anywhere else in the nation, which is, uh, you know, kudos to all of those that have been involved in, in maintaining that. And so w- when is it that we say, you know, does the strategy shift? Do we, you know, can we start to say, look, we're going we're gonna to throw a ton of resources into making sure uh, nursing homes are safe and protected and, and those kinds of things as opposed to, you know, kind of the broad brushed you know, government uh, intervention kind of, kind of things that uh, we've done in the past. So I, I, I think you're going to see a lot of uh, trying to figure out what is the next phase of this and, and how is it going to look. I, You know, we're heading into the fall, we're heading into flu season. We want uh, the message will be everybody should get a flu shot it always is that message but i think that message is more important this year than any other year uh, because the more we can drive flu down the better off that's going to be as we you know if we have another wave which you know seems likely uh, for preserving medical resources for you know keeping people uh, as healthy as we can as we look to figure out well until we have a vaccine, there's always that potential that there will continue to have cases and, and maybe a, a spike as the weather cools and all of that kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. so I, I think that's our, our next phase. As we, again, talk about exit strategy, you, one of the things we were talking about was a clear definition of maybe what's okay, what's acceptable, yeah. how do we... How do we go, okay, we're going to have a few deaths, there's going to be a spike. How do we, you know, where's the line? Is there a way to draw? And I know it's become very politicized, but, you know, does our governor or our president need to draw a line and say, this, this is going to be okay and we're going to make it? Yeah, absolutely. I, we've, def- we've done that with every other disease, right? Yeah. And, you know, so currently, for example, what, 660,000 people die every year with heart disease, and that's... Mm. Uh, you know, we, we, we work on that, but we don't, you know, <laughs> shut things down because of that. We, so sure. uh, we have to have, you know, a, a tolerance for saying, well, this is this is where we, we should be okay with things or with, this is where our best efforts are directed or this is how we're going to approach this as a society. And so uh, I, I think that's being sorted through. I mean, it's very, very clear that the overall... Uh, mortality from this is not nearly what people thought it might be from the initial media reports and uh, and we're getting ever, ever better at treating it and so those kinds of things have to be factored in and we have to say 
here's then here's the goal and uh, this is what that goal looks like this it isn't very fair of me to ask you that but if you were the one setting the line is there i mean is there somewhere that you would a goal that you would shoot for well, uh, <laughs> I know that's not a very fair question. Uh, well, and I'm, unfortunately, it's not me that does that. Right. right I mean, the right. governor has made it clear that that's his uh, responsibility. But I, I, I think it's reasonable to say, um, in our in our original pandemic plans that I pulled out when this all started and was looking at, it says, look, if you have less than 0.1 percent of your population um, that has died then you know then you enact a certain set of things and uh, that includes recommendations for uh, make, making sure people stay home when they're sick recommendations for um, how to socially distance and wash your hands and all of that kind of thing if you get up above that point one into the point five percent range then then you start to say well you know, maybe maybe if you uh, are not as an essential worker at work, maybe you don't go into work. I mean, so you, you gradate into that as opposed to what we did, which was shut everybody down. Yeah, we just we, jumped right we into panic. Any, fatali- any fatalities, right? And yeah. so I, I would say those kinds of pre-established lines are where we should have been the whole time because we could have had that as a discussion point, you know. And, and so hopefully we'll get back to those. So. 0.1% of our population here in this district, and it's grown, So, but from the number we usually use would be about 200 people, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, we're well, we're, we're 10% of that number, so I think we've succeeded magnificently with where we're at, and, and uh, uh, if, we're, if we're in under that range, we need to say we've succeeded heroically above what we would have ever thought we could succeed based on all the planning models and everything else and you know if you remember there were projections of millions of people you know dying and we've just never gotten close to that and and, uh, so um i I think we i i I think we can we can set a, a line somewhere in the sand that says you know this this is a balance we do it we do it with everything most people don't know that uh, in in studying medical economics, there's a number that you put on a year of life uh, for do- a dollar figure. <laughs> that's, mm. a, that sounds cold, but that's when they're trying to figure out whether or not to implement a vaccine or put a drug, you know, allow a drug to move forward or something. Then you then you say, well, what what, what would it cost per year of life saved? Uh, that figure is fifty thousand dollars, but we're, we're we're orders of magnitude above that for how much we've spent on on this pandemic. So, well, and and I, and I guess the factors change in there. You know, how much does it cost for that stuff too? As right. costs go up and everything, but uh, yeah, we, I I don't think we really like to look at it in those terms, though, Doc. We'll we'll, we'll let you experts do that because that kind of hurts. Well, I know, <laughs> and, and that's part of the dis- the difficulty I think in having a discussion as a society, right? But. But I, I think what's becoming clearer and clearer as we move forward is there's tremendous costs in health and economics and everything else for shutting down, right? So yeah. I, I was just at a, a – I was reading some things from uh, school boards across the country as they test kids uh, as they come back to school. They figure uh, they've lost somewhere around uh, 15 to 20 percent of their knowledge base uh, mm-hmm. due to being out of school. So what does that cost a child in their lifetime and, a, and, a, and you know, a, a society as they 
try and train a workforce and things like that. I mean, there's there, there's there's much more to this equation than just a number of uh, virus infections, and 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 those infections are just are not equal, right? A, a, a virus in a in a young person is just not the same as as in these high risk groups that we're talking about. So right, yeah. Well, I, I think one of the words I'd like to use is recidivism which is uh, how much knowledge they lose yeah. when, when there's a gap of, of them gaining knowledge. I, I, I have a school district guys on uh, you know, all the time, and they're like, well, you know, in summertime, they lose such and such amount of, of, of knowledge base. And then if you throw in, well, they missed March, April, and May, too, this year, although they had it online. It's, I, don't, I think most yeah. teachers would say that's not really quite the same. Uh, and, and I, I mean, anecdotally, you see it in your own home, you know, you see your kids, if if they don't do anything all summer with their brain, they, you know, come, come school, they have to relearn, you know, they spend the first third of the year relearning what they learned last year before they can start moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And the more that stretches out, the more, the more that is a problem. Right. And so, yeah. I really salute the Washington County School District and the, the districts down here. They've all opened up in person, and uh, things are going very well. You got to spend, uh, I think, three hours with them last night, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> in the, the school board meeting? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, we're just trying to figure out the best uh, place to be. and um, <clears throat> But... You know, it, you know, there were all these dire predictions of huge outbreaks and all of that kind, of, and they, they just haven't happened. And you know, maybe we will have some cases. We have, you expect that, and maybe there will be an outbreak or two. But, but I think that's uh, within the realm of what we need to expect, and and uh, we'll deal with as it comes. But it's really important to keep kids in school, and that's the goal here. So. Coming up in about four minutes, we're going to go weather break, and then we'll take your phone calls after the uh, weather break. But I uh, wanted to talk about a couple of things first before we get to that, and one of them is uh, vaccinations. Now, uh, obviously, flu season is coming. Uh, you guys have your flu shootout coming, which is, which is cool, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Yeah. But uh, the complications of the flu with COVID-19 are going to be great. I think there's a lot of people that are going to get one and think it's the other and vice versa. Uh, and then the vaccine that they're working on for COVID-19. Let's talk first about the flu. Uh, what's the number? 30-something percent usually get the flu vaccine every year? Right, right. That's we, not a good number. No. It's, <laughs> <laughs> we, and we're usually lower than most of the nation. Most of the nation gets up into the 50% range. We're always in the... Really? Utah's quite a bit lower. Yeah, right? 30 to 40 range, depending on... Any guess on as to why? Is. Well, I, I just... Um, no, no. <laughs> I, I think we're independent people, and that's you know it's all it's part of the the mix that uh, we deal with, and that's that's fine too. And but but I think this year the the focus will be on yeah, let's get as many people vaccinated as we possibly can. So, Do you anticipate? It seems, and we don't know. We haven't. You know, it's unprecedented there's there's the word again unprecedented but uh do you anticipate that a lot more people will get the flu vaccine this year than in the past i I hope so yeah you know i I hope those people that just don't get it because they don't think about it or or maybe they just didn't have time or you know they've had a plan and it just didn't happen you know i've I've been in that boat myself but i think this year of of all years is a year to get vaccinated i'm I'm a little worried uh, we're not going to have enough vaccine when mm. people want it. The, the state's ordered some additional doses that will be here, but not until the end of November. So, um, 
So, you, you know, come and, and uh, help us out, uh, exercise our plans for when we start delivering COVID vaccine by being part of our shootouts. We actually have two this year where we're exercising two different models. Um, the 22nd will be a walk-up model. Um, out at Legacy Park out there in Purgatory. Yeah, out in Purgatory there at the fairgrounds. And so that's for uh, everybody. Every, anybody can come to that one, and we'll 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 have it fully staffed, so we'll get you through there really really quickly. Yeah, so and, then, and then you can spend the rest of the day at the DMV standing in line. Yeah, that's something. right. So, <laughs> so you know, when, we, when we've done our throughput studies on this, I, I think we can get it down to once your paperwork's filled out and once you're ready to go, less than two minutes, right? And nice. so. Uh, it's it's more a matter of the paperwork and just making it through the line than it is actual time with the vaccine with the nurse and things like that. So, so that will be uh, helpful for us if we can have a bunch of people show up to that. the The first one will be our walkthrough model, and and to be quite frank with you, that's the model we'll use when we have the big shootouts for COVID itself. Is okay. is walk up because. What we learned in H1N1 is cars just don't compact very well. So, so we had cars spread out for miles. That's true. Yeah, it might and, be convenient, <laughs> but where are you going to well, put them all? Well, and it's it's convenient for people, but not really. And it's very inconvenient for our staff, right? So if you're outside and it's cold, which it likely will be if it's November, December, mm-hmm. and your nurses are having a hard time getting their fingers Can't flexible feel your finger enough. To give a shot. Yeah. They're crawling over seats to try and get the kids, and kids are kicking <laughs> them, and yeah, it just doesn't work. So. So we'll uh, we'll have accommodations for people that you know need them to show up to these big shootouts and maybe a mobile team that can go in a nursing home. You know, we'll, we'll have lots of options uh, that we can do with this. But uh, so that first one on the twenty second, that will be our model likely for COVID. And then the second one, we we like to do a drive up shootout for flu because. Um, for those that are elderly, um, it really is a convenience for them. And so so anybody 18 and older can come through that one. And that, that, what, that, that what, was, what was the deal on that second one? That'll be on the 29th. 29th, so um, a week later. Uh, okay. at the In our traditional site there at the mall, out in the parking lot of the mall. So um, let me make sure I have the right times here so I can give them to you. Um, so it's tw- the 22nd out at Legacy Park. 22nd from 8 to noon, walk in, and then the 29th from 8 to noon as well. So 8 to noon on both, um, okay. whether you want to drive through or come and, and experience the new walkthrough model. That would be kind of fun. So Maybe we should get Dave Heaton in here at the studio and, and shoot me again just right. to show people right. it doesn't hurt and it's fun. <laughs> You know, nurses that have given a lot of shots, and not a lot of nurses do give very many shots anymore. It's more IVs and things like that in the medical setting. So our our nurses, because they've given thousands of shots in their careers, they they know how to do it. They're, they're really good. They're really, they are. really good at it. So and it's not like it's a big large gauge needle, like no, you know, like, no. like you're getting a. When you're, when you're having a baby, they put the one in your back. <laughs> right. Yeah, that that thing's giant. But yeah, no, this, these are little. None of that. These so. are the, the really nice ones. And um, they've figured out how to do it just correctly. I was reminiscing about the days when I, we used to, we didn't do it here, but in other health departments I've been in, we've used the, the air the air guns to do vaccines those are really painful so we don't do those back in the day yeah they're they're, they're needles so. <laughs> i don't miss those at all all right uh, dr blodgett's with me it's wednesday the second day of september we'll have more with doc right after this
Thanks for tuning in this morning. Happy Wednesday to you. August, or not August, September 2nd. See, even I didn't change my calendar yet. I got, I got to get up and flip that over here in a minute, Dr. Blodgett. But appreciate you coming on the show. Dr. David Blodgett, who is the director of the Southwest Utah Public Health Department, is with me today. And uh, we'd love to take your call, 673-5890, 673-5890 is the phone number. We actually had a couple of people, several people call while we were doing our, our, our monologue part. And uh Hopefully they'll call back. I know they had some cool questions for us. Uh, all right. So we were talking a little bit about vaccinations. Uh, we, we, we talked about the flu vaccination, the shootouts on the 22nd and the 29th. Uh, but uh, what about this COVID-19 vaccination? You know, I, I was curious. Uh, they're, they're talking about uh, kind of expediting or skipping some of the processes if they feel like they have a lot of success and don't have a lot of problems with the, whatever stage they're at, Doc. And I'm just curious, uh, is that a good idea? Is it worth the, the trade-off? Well, so I don't, I, don't, I don't think they're thinking about skipping steps. But oh, what okay. they're doing is they're stacking steps. Oh, so, okay. So the most important step, step that they're stacking is production. So <clears throat> the, the term they're using is at risk. So they're, they're producing vaccine at risk, which means the risk is that the vaccine will be worthless because it never gets approved through the so process. So they, they make a whole bunch, spend money right. on it, and then it doesn't work. Right. So the, the U.S. government has selected six potential vaccines that they think are most promising, and they are paying those companies to produce that vaccine before it's approved. So the so, loser wouldn't be the company. The loser would be the government. Right. So okay. that's taxpayer dollars that right. are on the line. So there. you and I. Um, <laughs> But, you know, in a lot of ways, it makes a lot of sense because if you wait through this process and then you start to produce the vaccine, that's why it takes two, three years to get a vaccine to market. Whereas if where they've kind of identified the ones they think are most uh, promising and they're allowing them to produce that vaccine uh, before it's approved, then once it gets approval, then it can ship. So and if it doesn't get approved, then it, you know, it gets we go back to the drawing board, but there's six candidates that uh, seem to be, they've all passed their initial um, uh, safety trials in small numbers. Then they go into phase two, which is larger numbers for safety and efficacy. So 30,000 people now have had uh, a, a version of the COVID shot and uh, in and just the one vaccine uh, from Moderna. And so so then they'll track that uh, for that. And then phase three is then you have a group that's a, that gets the vaccine and a group that doesn't get the vaccine, and you see how, how much better the group that doesn't get the vaccine does as far as getting disease and, and how severe But ethically, you can't expose them to COVID-19. Right. Yeah, so. so we can't – those are called challenge tests, and they used hmm. to do that a lot, right? I mean, the, the initial – the very classic vaccine – uh, story was smallpox, and uh, you know Jenner took a, a little boy from down the street and <laughs> yeah. shot, shot him up with a vaccine, and then exposed him to smallpox. You just uh, can't, can't do that anymore. So, uh, so if we could, that would even expedite it more. But that's just not ethical. And so, mm-hmm. so those trials that are going on right now, there's there's versions of phase two and phase three going on right now for those uh, at least two or three of those six the really promising vaccines and and so so they're stacking them so that you get multiple arms of the study going at the same time and then 
producing the vaccine while it's being approved and wow and and then they do, they just don't sit there on somebody's desk at the fda they get approved they get looked at and vetted immediately instead of having a long lengthy process so so i think in the end um the the safety profile will be the same it's it's just how do, how do they make the process uh, geared for speed rather than make it as slow and painful as they possibly can so. we, we've talked about you know some of the other things that have come out of covid you know uh, working from home and sometimes maybe maybe you know they've expedited it made it better so that uh maybe that's something that can be permanent it, would this be something that maybe might be a little more permanent for future vaccines for other diseases yeah i think i think we've learned a lot good uh, learned good. a lot on the process learned a lot on what it takes to know something safe on numbers and you know maybe maybe it's better to spend more to get those bigger numbers faster than 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 do it in a slow phased approach which is what they've done in the past or things like that i I, I don't know. It, I, it will be, it'd be interesting I'm to see. Cer- certainly, if we have an a, event like this where you need a vaccine much more quickly, they've they've learned a lot about how to do that process. Very good. All right, then let's go to the phone lines. Caller, you're on with Andy and with Dr. Blodgett this morning. How are you? Hello, Andy and Dr. Blodgett. Thank Hello. you for being patient. What's on your mind? You bet. Hey, um, this is a health issue unrelated to COVID, but Andy, you brought it up last week when you um, mentioned that there's a proposed huge bar um, that they want to put in in downtown St. George. And the way it affects health is, I've been doing some research, there are definite um, correlations between alcohol use and suicide, alcohol use and crime, assaults, um, things like that that definitely affect the health of people, um, rapes, robberies. And so, um, I just wanted to get Dr. Blodgett's comments on how alcohol affects those kind of things. And also, Andy, mm-hmm. if you could help us advertise that this bar will be considered tomorrow at city council. The meeting starts at 5. And I would just encourage everybody to email or call the city council, the mayor, and express concerns. I liked the, your last caller last week who said, people come here because of our lifestyle. Why would we want to bring this kind of stuff in that would degrade our, our lifestyle and our safety and contribute to all these bad things. Well, well said. Well said. Dr. Blodgett? Yeah, well, great points. Um, yeah, alcohol was the first drug and still is, right, and most prominently used. It's So we, we always use a scale in public health to determine what is the biggest health issues based on preventable causes of death, right? So <clears throat> in the medical profession, they say, well, heart disease is the number one cause of death because it causes 660,000 deaths a year. But we look at it from a standpoint of, well, what, what's the underlying cause of that? And so heart mm-hmm. disease comes from lots of different areas, not the least of which is the number one cause of death as far as public health is concerned, which is cigarette smoking. Second is uh, lifestyle issues as far as diet and obesity. But third on that list, third highest cause of death is alcohol consumption. And so, uh, you know, it, it's maybe a legal drug, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't have profound impacts on the lives of those that it uh, is in, around. And, uh, you know, where you place bars makes a difference on whether or not it's accessible and seems to normalize and make uh, visible to kids uh, drinking and that drinking to them becomes desirable based on where things are. So. I, I think communities have a vested interest on 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 where and and how much and and whether they allow um, 
these kinds of things into their communities. So we, we deal heavily in the, you know, nicotine and, and vaping side of things. And, and uh, all of that, all of those have requirements that they have to meet for offsets and how close they can be to schools and, and residential areas. And, and uh, I would really make sure that all of that is closely looked at and, and that the will of the community is known on what they think here. Five o'clock tomorrow, city council. They're going to talk about it. So, uh, yeah, thanks for the call on that. Caller, you're on with Andy with Dr. Blodgett. What's Can up? I just make one comment? About oh, yeah, that? sure. Go ahead. I, I'm not sure how to talk about anything other than COVID. So that, that was a little strange. <laughs> it's like, what? You asked about non Okay. <laughs> Caller, go ahead. Uh, Non-COVID. That, that'll be the new thing for next year. No COVID. Perfectly right. Yeah, um, so. <laughs> yeah, so I guess when it comes down to the vaccination, that's, it's an interesting topic. But what I want to flip over to is the plasma side okay. and the plasma research that they're doing with COVID, that the body's producing the antibodies. And is that being used more for a therapeutic or is it being used more for like a cure? Is, I guess my question. Yeah. Red Cross has been sending me emails left and right. Please come in, donate, so we can test, you know, for for the antibodies if you possibly had COVID. I mean, it's just, I'm very, very curious on the plasma side of things. Great. If you can kind of enlighten us there, I'd be great. extremely curious. Yeah, great, great so, question. So, yeah, thank you. So, so this it's interesting. This is not a topic without some controversy. Mm-hmm. Um Historically, convalescent plasma has actually been used quite a bit um, to help with uh, the, the disease progression of diseases. And so, like toxoid plasma, for example, is that's what it is, is convalescent plasma. And so the idea is that somebody that's had the disease, they create antibodies, which is what uh, any person needs to fight off disease. You give them those antibodies and it helps uh, dispel or fight off the the ability of that disease to reproduce in the body and and to cause trouble. Um, and I I think that will prove to be true with convalescent sera for um, for COVID nineteen. I just the, part of the problem that I think COVID is presenting to the medical community is if you don't do some of these interventions, pl- convalescent plasma or convalescent sera, um, or something like remdesivir, which is an antiviral medication, they, they work best if you do it within, you know, the very first stages of the disease. And those those stages have been so mild, even in people that end up being really severely impacted by this disease, that you don't they don't actually go into the medical system until it's really kind of too late for those therapies to have much of an impact. That's the problem with hydroxychloroquine is yeah. people aren't going in until they've already had it two weeks with, and with, then with any of these yeah. medications and, and so um so I, I think that will prove to be part of the issue with convalescent sera is how do you how do you get that in there soon enough to make a difference? Now I do know that uh, they're using a lot of it in the medical profession and they're working out protocols to do that. And I think uh, for uh, you know the FDA approved that for emergency use authorization. So there's a lot of interest around that. I, I, I think the overall evidence. Uh, that it does a ton of uh, to impact the disease is is not quite as good as some would like to see it, and I, it'll be interesting to follow the course of the discuss- discussion as it goes forward. But uh, but it is a well established scientific principle to use it. Uh, there, there is one little complication 
that I've been reading about, and that is if you give it too late, once somebody has tipped over into this cascade of over and overexcited inflammatory system, mm-hmm. the convalescent sera has a lot of those factors in it, right? Uh-oh. And so there's some concern that you know worse. that timing is going to be really critical here because mm-hmm. because you're just adding to the components that are available to for this overexcited immune system and so so it, it's a lot more complicated than yeah it works or doesn't work and it's been that way for all of the therapeutics on this and timing seems to be really critical on all of it but i think that's what makes um steroids uh, really part of the armament that seems to be working the best because you don't you use it once people have tipped over into that more severe stage of disease and you can tell when it is and then it has been shown to help so so th- there's some of those things uh, that I think will end up in the end being the go-to agents um, I think I think the verdict is still out on whether convalescent serum will be there I think if it is it will be using it as early as possible in the course of disease so if I get a thing from the Red Cross that says please come give your plasma or whatever uh, I should yeah, yeah I think it's a good thing and, okay. and maybe they'll let you know whether you've got antibodies already right okay. so that would be kind of fun uh, yeah. now I, I, I think Red Cross has really taken a hit with everything that's going on people don't want to go out and get exposed and things sure. like that but there's still all that demand for blood now you add on to it this idea that convalescent serum might help people and so um, they, they, could, they, could, they could use a hand Yeah, for I, sure. I was a blood drive organizer uh, at one stage in my life and uh, I, I know they do really great work so a shout out to them. Like like trying to sell an Eskimo a popsicle, I guess, yeah. sometimes, right? <laughs> That's right. It's tough. All right, then let's go back to the phone lines. Caller, you're on with Andy with Dr. Blodgett. Morning, Andy. Morning, Doc. Morning. Morning. Tuned in a little late, but sounds like things are going the right direction with the vi- antivirus and stuff. So, yeah. Now, we've got the flu season coming, and we know... That works, what, 40 to 60 percent, or that's high numbers? Yeah, it depends on the year, but, yeah, somewhere in that range. Always, though, people that get vaccinated do better when they have been vaccinated, so that's good. Um, And about half the people don't get vaccinated or close to it. Right. So we get a vaccination for the covid and now that we've seen health department, the governor has all this power that they've accumulated from who knows where. Are they going to force us all by gunpoint to get in line and get a vaccination? Uh, <laughs> I, I I don't think so. I would hope not. I, I think that's the wrong message here. And um, that's certainly not something that I would advocate for, for kids in school or for Anybody, I think that needs to be a decision that you make and that you, you know, choose to have that vaccine or not. Um, no, I, I, I really hope that's not the direction that goes. Now, you know, as you've probably picked up from this show, I, I end up uh, out of those discussions more frequently than not, and it's just kind of top down. But, uh, but I think there will be a lot of voices that say, you know what, this is this is not the time to be trying to force something down like that down people's throats. And I, I hope that's not the way it goes. All right. Uh, Got to get one real quick commercial break in, and then we'll take a couple of you have been patient and calling. Please uh, hang on the line uh, and keep trying, and we'll get we'll get to you in just a second. Dr. Blodgett is with me today. Uh, by the way, Joe Shoney is a loan consultant uh, serving Southern Utah for more than 25 years. 
And his focus, as always, is customer service. If you go check out his reviews online, it's pretty amazing. 422 reviews, and the average is 4.91 stars. Uh, let's see. Uh, this is Susan. says, very friendly and knowledgeable service provided by Joe and his team. Always available for questions. Great work. Uh, this is uh, Christopher. Great work getting my house funded. Joe's team, very professional all the way. Uh, they just go on and on and on like that. 4.91 out of 5 stars. You know that his customer service is second to none. Give him a call today. Joe Shoney. It's 435-590-6300. Or if you just want to shoot him an email, it's joe.shoney, S-C-H-O-N-E-Y, joe.shoney at nafinc.com. Hey, new sponsor of the show is the Barbecue Pit Stop in St. George, just off the boulevard. It's 180 North, 300 East. It's behind Napa Auto Parts there in the Flood Street the marketplace there. Southern uh, St. George, Utah's uh, premier barbecue store. They offer Utah's largest selection of smokers, grills, outdoor kitchens, barbecue sauces, and rubs. I've got it all at the Barbecue Pit Stop. I've got Dr. Blodgett on the line with me. And Dr. Blodgett, as long as he's been coming on this show, has preached uh, moderation uh, and, and and making sure we don't overindulge. And there are times, <laughs> Dr. Blodgett, I overindulge on smoked meats. Yeah. I'm trying to reform myself, but uh, I can't help it. I go to the barbecue, barbecue pit stop and get uh, sauces and rubs and everything. And yeah, it's it's my problem. I'm dealing with it. No, no. It's, uh, <laughs> I've, I've been known to do that a few times myself. So. <laughs> Yeah, love the, love the smoked meat. I actually had a guy c- come in and uh, hand me uh, some documentation on how we shouldn't be eating so much meat. Yeah, and uh, well, I probably deserved it because I talk about it too much. But. I think uh, in the moderation message, right? I mean, that's that's true overall. We could mm-hmm. all do with a little less meat, but uh, some meat is appropriate. We need that good <laughs> protein, right? Yeah, yeah. I I think any extreme is uh, problematic. That's right. You occasionally, you know, can have a Twinkie, but don't have three a day. Yeah, well, don't right. don't don't binge a, a twenty <laughs> Twinkie day. I guess <laughs> that'd be expensive too. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. We've got about three or four minutes left. Caller, you're on with Doctor Blodgett and Andy. What's up, Doctor? Um, I'm a uh grandparent parent i'm 73 years old and i'm taking care of two children one has autism and one has they're both special needs kids and i'm concerned about them going to hurricane high school and hurricane middle school and affecting me because i'm i'm the one that's taking care of them i'm single single grandfather parent okay that's one a part of it and then that's one the first question the second is in March, suddenly I get psoriatic arthritis, and they put me on something that the rheumatologist put me on, methyltrexate sodium, and everybody's telling me I'm a fool to be messing around with my immune system. Um, am I? Well, so, so if we could go to the school question, I, you know, the... The truth is there will probably be a few kids there that have, you know, that get this disease. And and so if and I really salute you for the situation you're in and what you're doing. That's really remarkable. Yeah, I, 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 I admire that a lot. The, the schools have made online options available to everybody. And um, I, I, I think largely that was for people that 
you know, if they don't feel comfortable sending their children to school for whatever reason, they have an option, you know, to, to have their kids not be in the school. And so so I, I think that's a consideration for you, whether or not you, you feel there's a ben- enough of a benefit to have them in school that you would, you know, take the risk of getting sick versus uh, whether or not um, having them home would make you feel more safe and comfortable and all of that. So there's, there's, there's a little bit of risk there. I think you have to decide where you're at with your situation in life as to how you would do that. I, the, the highest risk is always the 85-year-old range. You're in a little bit lower risk there. Probably about 5% of those that end up getting this disease end up having enough trouble that they uh, pass away or about uh, 8 or 9% up in the hospital. So I think that's the kind of landscape that you're looking at. Methotrexate, uh, they give it to you in low enough doses that I don't. It doesn't have the kind of overwhelming immune uh, compromise that, say, methotrexate for cancer would have. Uh, and so um, I think if it modulates your condition enough that you feel better, I, I think I would. Um, I would not uh, go against your doctor's advice there and, and not do something like that, especially if it's providing relief for you. I think that's what you need to analyze. But, uh, you know, I, I think it remains to be seen whether that will have a severe impact on this disease. There is some thought, some speculation that maybe something like methotrexate, you know, chemotherapeutic agents might be part of the solution because they don't allow hmm. that over-response. But that's all, it's all speculative and tentative. And, you know, there's yeah. a million articles out there that nobody knows what they mean. So, so I, I don't, I wouldn't change what your doctor has prescribed and, and I would follow that course uh, and, and talk through those issues and concerns with him, see what he has to say or her, him or her, your voice, doctor. Voice of reason, <laughs> Dr. David Blodgett. Uh, we've used it up. Sorry about that. But uh, great to have you on today. Sure, always. Great to be here. Thank you. Doctor, and, and thanks to the community for all you're doing to stay health, healthy and safe. Dr. Blodgett, Southwest Utah Public Health Department. Uh, and that's it for the show today. We'll be on uh, with Mayor Pike tomorrow.